Open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 20. Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 20. It's our series on the book of Proverbs, verse by verse. Wisdom from above. Just in time for the hot summer months when we're all in here suffering together, but it'll keep you awake, that's for sure. The sweating will keep you awake. It's definitely t-shirt weather in here right now, for sure. I have this nice fan behind me, though, which is nice. You guys don't have this, so I'm sorry, you're suffering worse than me now. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Hear now the word of the living and the true God. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. God, we pray that you'd bless us today with your wisdom. Lord, you say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so, God, we humble ourselves even now, and we fear you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's not the middle. It's not the end. It's the beginning. And so, as your people, we come before you because you have opened our eyes to the truth. You've raised us to life. Lord, we fear you. And we ask that you'd bless us as a church as we examine, Lord, your word, your wisdom from above. Bless us. Lord, make us, Lord, into wise people. Allow this series to renew our minds and hearts. Lord, to make us wiser people for your glory, not for our sake, but for your glory and for your kingdom. Let your wisdom fill this world. We ask that you'd get the preacher and teacher out of the way that your people will forget me and remember what they've learned from you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting, uh, when um, Dr. Bonson 
opened up this particular section himself, he, um, he was talking, I actually borrowed the title he used for it because that, well, that's appropriate. It's very good. Wisdom's last laugh. Wisdom's last laugh. And he was talking about those who have the very last laugh. And he was telling a, a, a famous story from history about Sir William, uh, Winston Churchill and how there was a woman who just despised him. And uh, oddly, in, with, it, with a crowd of people around, she walked up to him in front of everybody and she said, um, Sir, if I was your wife, I would poison your tea. To which everybody in the circle laughed because it's inappropriate to do that to Winston Churchill, but you know, crowd of people, everyone sort of giggled at it, at I guess her, uh, her audacity. And uh, Winston Churchill responded to her with the last laugh. He said, lady, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> That's, we understand what it means to have the last laugh in a situation like that. And there are other circumstances I think we can all recognize. We probably all have stories where wisdom was given, knowledge and instruction was given. It wasn't heeded, and then there was destruction afterwards. We'll get into that. And I was thinking as I was... Uh, unpacking this and, and praying over this and meditating on this particular sermon verses, I was thinking back to a time in my own life when I was younger. I um, grew up since I was four years old doing martial arts, and my dad was in the military, and so we traveled around the world and ultimately landed in Japan. And my life was quite literally all about the martial arts. I mean, from the time I got home, I would go and I trained in two different martial arts schools in Japan, all week, six days a week. It was two different schools. I would go to one school for like three days and the other school, and these schools were brutal. I mean, they didn't let the parents, in one of the schools, they didn't let the parents observe the classes. They would close the doors and make sure no one could see inside because if they saw, if our parents saw what they were doing to us in there, they, it would not go well, trust me. They were doing some pretty, um, pretty destructive things to us, and we fought. Uh, I remember going to martial arts class. I was passionate about it because I wanted to be great at it, and I wanted to be the best at it, and I wanted to learn how to fight. I was picked on a lot. I mean, I'm not a big guy, and when I was young, I was pretty scrawny, and I think I was easy to be picked on, to, to pick on in school, and so I was bullied a lot through school, my, my elementary school years, and up into middle school, I was bullied a whole lot, and so I wanted to learn how to fight, and as much as I was terrified, quite literally every single day to go to class in Japan in these schools. I wanted to go because I wanted to learn how to really fight. And so we would start these classes off, there'd be basic warm-ups and training, and then they would say, okay, get set. And so we would sit on the edge of the floor and really there was no gear required, something that wouldn't be allowed in American schools. I mean, you could wear, a, you needed to wear a cup, that was wise. There's wisdom for you, wear the cup, trust me. You don't want to be on the other side of that calamity, believe me. So you could wear a cup and a mouthpiece, but uh, they would allow you to wear shin pads. But we learned after a while, you don't really want to wear the shin pads because it helps the person you're sparring, like it softens the blow for them. So you really want to use the blade of the shin against your opponent in class. And the way that sparring went in Japan was basically you either knock the guy down, you knocked him out of the ring, or you knocked him out to win. And so I can't tell you how many times uh, I was knocked out in class, quite literally, knocked out cold. One time I was knocked out cold and I woke up. 
I don't know how long after I woke up, they had just dragged me to the side of the dojo, left me, and they kept going with the class. I came to and looked around, everyone's still going, and I just crawled my way back to the line to do it again. I mean, it was kind of terrifying. I broke every finger. I've broken all my toes. My shin bone came out of my leg once. I've broken my nose so many times. The doctors tell me that if I break it again, they probably can't really fix it because there's no cartilage left uh, from the surgeries. I mean, I have black eyes, bruises, cuts. I used to come home with big black eyes. My mom would say, what happened? I would say, oh, just an accident. Just, we you know, you don't want to mention it because I don't want to get pulled, but just mind you, I was training to fight and it was real fighting and it was every day and it was for hours a day. And in school I was bullied and there was the school bully named Cedric. His name was Cedric. This kid was thick and I mean thick like muscular, strong. He was a boxer. I saw him in so many fights after school and even in school. Everybody was terrified of Cedric. And then one day, Cedric took a liking to bullying me. I became his pet project. And I remember that he would make fun of me in class and in the hallway and at lunch and at recess and after school. He would laugh at me, he'd mock me, he'd get everyone else laughing at me. And I would just try to avoid it. And my my uh, master instructors in Japan used to throw people out of the school, even black belts, Whoever got into fights, they were unjustified. You would lose your belt, they would take it off of you in front of the entire class, and they would, they would, they would permanently ban you from the school if you used the art in that way. They considered their training they were giving to you sacred, and you needed to be trusted with it. And so I knew I can't abuse this, I don't want to get into any trouble. And so I used to tell Cedric when he would try to start fights with me, he would literally come up to me and smack me in the face in front of a crowd of people, and I would say, don't do that, I don't want to hurt you. And he would laugh, hurt me. I mean, this was Cedric, this kid could fight. I mean, it was actually, I remember one fight vividly that was terrifying. He broke this kid's teeth. I mean, I don't know how many teeth he broke. The kid had to go to the hospital. It was a terrible thing to watch. Well, he decided I'm his new project. And so one day, we go on a school field trip to an ice skating rink. And so at the ice skating rink, he sees me, there's a crowd of people, he runs up to me, pushes me, I said, Cedric, I don't want to fight you. Don't do that, it's not gonna be good for you. And he did not like that I said that. And so he kicked me in my shin with an ice skate. Yeah, my leg was bleeding, teacher didn't do anything. And so I just didn't do anything and I warned him, I said, Cedric, don't do this. I don't want to fight you. And so came to home that day, we're riding the same bus home, I get off the bus and sure enough, Cedric's off the bus and tries to start a fight with me in front of my house at the bus stop. And I warned him again, I said, Cedric, I don't wanna fight you, please stop. This is gonna end very badly. And so he smacked me in the face in front of everybody. I turned around, walked to my apartment building in Japan, and I go upstairs. And I'm reeling from that and I'm trying to keep it together in my own mind, not get too upset. And this is back when Nintendo was really a thing and so I'm playing Super Mario Brothers in my bedroom. I remember it vividly. My feet are up on the thing, I'm TV, I'm trying to, you know, recover from that big smack in front of everybody, and do 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 And you know, I'm just trying to relax in my bedroom, in my house. And next thing you know, I hear a noise behind me, and I turn around and look in my bedroom, the door is open, and who's standing in my doorway? Cedric, in my house, in my doorway, and there, I was 
I was completely confused. I was, I did, what is happening? Is this a dream? Am I having like a literal nightmare? I'm hallucinating now about Cedric in my house. And he walks right up to me, game controller in my hand, tucks a really tight punch and just nails me in the face while I'm sitting in my chair with a punch right to the face. All I remember is douche and the controller flying and I jumped up out of the seat and at that very moment, it was on. <laughs> Everything in me turned on, all the focus in my body. I was fighting every day, all the time. I knew what it was like to get hit in the face. It didn't bother me at all. It was like, now I have permission to bring the calamity. And so I turned around to Cedric and I gave him the beating out of a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. I was, I had him against the wall. He, I remember his face today. He was so in shock over what was happening to him. He was like dumbfounded. I was raising him up when he was trying to fall down and using elbows and headbutts and knees. I was slamming his head against my, my bed just, just, just cause. <laughs> you interrupted my game, right? And I'm screaming at him yelling at him and my sister was there she let him in she didn't know he came to the door with a bunch of guys and he said hi is Jeff here she thought he was a friend she said yeah he's in his room she let him in now she hears World War three happening in my room when she came in with her friend her name was Wendy she sees me grabbing this boy picking him up, elbow, elbow, knee, throwing. I'm like, I'm just playing with him at this point. She tries to pull me off, and this was bad, kids, don't do this. I turned around and punched Wendy and my sister, went back to Cedric, and they had to put me in a chokehold, bring me into the bathtub. She threw me into the bathtub, and they, they took Cedric, and they dragged his body out of the house. They put it outside the door, and his friends did something with him. But the next day at school, Cedric's face was blown up like a balloon. He walked around the hallways with his eyes almost sealed shut, his lip busted, his face black and blue. And when he passed me, his head was down. And I remember one time distinctly as he passed me, everyone at school knew what happened. The whole school was laughing at him. This school bully, after being warned over and over and over, now he was the laughing stock. Whoever has the last laugh. In this moment before us, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. As a woman. Now, don't let that throw you. Um, we know that God is the real wisdom here, and Christ is the wisdom of God. Don't let it throw you that wisdom is personified as a woman. Uh, in Hebrew, it's actually a feminine noun, and so it makes sense. She's personified as a woman. Now notice here, it says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Notice, please, her location. Her pulpit, Wisdom's pulpit, is in public. It's in the public square. It's at the marketplace. She's raising her voice her pulpit is in the public square. It's important for us to capture this today, especially when we live in a time where many Christians treat Christianity, treat the biblical faith 
as more of a private experience, a private intimate experience. It's really for those like, okay, do you accept this? Now come on the inside. It's for the insiders, the initiated. Wisdom is for us. This is our truth for our little crew, our little clique over here. But notice wisdom in Scripture doesn't behave that way. Wisdom actually sets up a pulpit in the marketplace, in the public square. It's not just private. It's not just the home. It's not within the four walls of the church. It's not just for the initiated. Wisdom here is the original street preacher. Think about that in terms of the principle. Wisdom here is crying out in the marketplace above the sea of people and all their noise to make her wisdom heard. She's the street preacher. She's personified as a woman. Again, don't let that throw you. It's a portrait. It's a picture. But notice where she exists is in the public square, and this is vitally important to get. Because we live in a time where we've privatized the Christian faith, the Christian message, the law of God, the wisdom of God, we like to say, well, if you don't believe that, that's fine. There's this area of neutrality out there. But for us, Jesus is Lord. For us, this is the word of God. For the initiated, this is our inside experience. This is where the word goes. We don't want to go out there into the marketplace with the sea of people. We don't want to go out there to the city gates and offend anybody. So let's keep this experience something that is palatable for people, where they'll be willing to accept it. Notice wisdom doesn't do that. She doesn't whisper to people. She's not whispering to people. She's crying out in the public square. You people often ask us, the ministries that we do, you guys go to some hard places, and we do as a church. No glory to us. We just believe that wisdom belongs shouting in the public square. People will say, you know, why do you go to the Mormon temple? Don't you think that's offensive to people? Aren't there better ways to reach those people? Or early on, you know, in our ministry at the abortion mills, People used to often chastise us and challenge us. And that's not really how you're going to reach those women. Don't go there and say those things to them. They'll take those things as harsh. They'll take them as condemning. We go to the strip clubs. We go to Mill Avenue. We go to ASU. We go to the places where there's hostility, but we bring the truth into the public square because in principle, that's where the truth belongs, in the public square. And when Jesus talks about building his church, he talks about building his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember what gates do. Gates don't advance. Gates protect. Gates guard. And so when Jesus even talks about the mission of his church, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because the truth is supposed to go out there. The truth is supposed to overwhelm darkness with its light. And in this case right here in Proverbs Chapter 1, verse 20, you see wisdom crying aloud in the public square. This is what God does. He calls out to the scoffers. He calls out to the simple. He calls out to the fools. Wisdom does that. It does it courageously. It does it truthfully. It does it loudly. It's interesting. Um, we were talking about this this week on Apologia Radio. It's a really well-done film done recently some of you guys may have heard about it by matt walsh it's called what is a woman anybody see that in here anybody see what is a woman okay what is a woman 
Now, it was done really well. I said this week when we talked about it in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, we sort of have a methodology of engagement given to us in the book of Proverbs, like a wise way to engage with people. And in Proverbs 26, 4, same book we're in now, it says, don't answer the fool according to their folly, lest you be like unto them, or you'll be like them. Don't adopt their principles, don't adopt their presupposition, don't adopt their methodologies, or you're going to be like them. And then there's a contrast or something that seems opposite. It says, answer the fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own conceit. And what I said about the film, What is a Woman?, was that it did a wonderful job of answering the fool according to their folly, making the fool look at their position to look at their feet and examine themselves. It was really, really well done. But something was missing. It was a, it was a film, a documentary, meant to engage the modern problem of gender bending and confusion. I mean, it's interesting, years ago, people used to make the argument if you can just simply, as a matter of just your mind, say, I am a woman. You've got the beard, you've got everything about your genetics and your biology that is screaming and shouting down to your bones, maleness. But you can say with your own mind, I identify as female. We were saying years ago, what's to stop somebody from identifying as a cat or a dog? or something else, and people would mock that idea. Nobody's saying that, nobody's doing that. And one of the fantastic things about this film is that very thing is in the film. Somebody who says, I identify as a wolf. I'm a wolf. There are people now arguing, my personal pronoun is bug. So you can refer to me as bug, or bug self, or something like that, or moth. Foolishness, the gullible. But one of the challenges I had with this film is in terms of what wisdom is supposed to be. What does this book start with as the foundation of everything that comes afterwards? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of wisdom. Not the middle, not the end. It's the beginning of wisdom. And so if we don't start our pursuit of knowing things, if we don't start our pursuit of having skilled living with the fear of God, then we have not even begun. We haven't even started. And so a challenge I have with a film like what we saw, which was a really well done film, it's fantastic, I highly encourage you to watch it, is that it completely avoided the most fundamental starting point. And that is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Matt Walsh, when he was talking about the film, he was criticized, of course, by Christians, that you left out the most important part. You left out the biblical worldview. You left out God. You left out faith. You left out the most important foundational thing in the conversation. And Matt Walsh, again, fantastic film, said that he wanted to leave out the theology and leave out the faith aspect because he didn't want somebody to simply turn off because they said, well, that's just religion and I reject God. Brothers and sisters, wisdom does not pull punches. Wisdom shouts in the marketplace 
And don't forget the foundation of all wisdom, the beginning of all wisdom, is the fear of God. And so if we try to correct the world around us without pointing, pointing them to their need for reconciliation and peace with God, if we don't point them to their need to fear God, then they can't know anything. And somebody might respond to that, yes. But if you have people that already reject God and you come as a messenger of God, they're immediately going to dismiss you. That's precisely the problem in the world, isn't it? Is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And we do not hide wisdom or whisper it because people may not accept it. If we want people to have understanding, if we want people to know, if we want people to be wise, we have to come like wisdom in the city streets, at the gates, in the marketplace, shouting, calling out above them, telling them the truth. Because see, here's the problem. If you leave out the question of God and his truth and Christ in this conversation of gender bending that we're facing so much today in a film like that, if you leave out Christ, then you've left out the very grounding for knowledge and understanding and truth. What does Jesus say? I am the way and the what? The truth. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Christ. If you take Christ out of the question, you've lost all the treasures. It's, it's like you're going to war and someone tells you, why don't you leave your most effective weapons behind? Go out there and fight with your bare hands. Why would I give up the greatest weapon, the very foundation of knowledge and truth? And if we leave Christ out of this discussion, if we don't start this discussion with the very fear of God, then it's just one tribe arguing with another tribe about what they prefer. And you'll note also, when we attempt to bring the wisdom of God into the public square, but we leave Christ out of it, you'll note that the people who had adopted a perverse lifestyle and loved their sin still reject the message. Why? Because the problem is that this text says that the fools, the simple, the scoffers, the mockers hate knowledge. They're opposed to knowledge. They don't delight in understanding. What does the text say? Our foundational verse I encourage you all to memorize. I'm going to say it to you a lot. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and correction or wisdom and instruction. The problem to be solved is a problem of the heart and the mind. The problem is the desperate need of reconciliation and peace with God. Wisdom cries out. Wisdom tells the truth. Wisdom pleads, but wisdom does not pull punches. Wisdom beckons. And so the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. One thing to note as you talk about this conversation of bringing wisdom into the public square is that there is no transformation possible in this world. No genuine transformation possible in this world without regeneration. Without regeneration, no transformation. And so you can bring all the wisdom, all the logic, all the reasons, all the proof of the natural order God has created into the world, and if you're doing it to unregenerate people, it will fall on stony hearts. What do people need? They need the heart of stone removed, and they need to turn into a heart of flesh. 
There is no transformation without regeneration. Note verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? It says they hate knowledge. Not that they're neutral. Not that they really want understanding. It says that they hate knowledge. Fools hate knowledge. They despise wisdom and correction. But wisdom still beckons them to fear God, calls to them to fear God. In his commentary on Proverbs chapter 1, Bruce Waltke says that she cries aloud, wisdom does. She's shouting, she's scolding, she's pleading, she's reasoning, she's threatening, she's warning, and she's laughing. The text says this, how long, O simple ones, let's key in on this, this word here, simple. Some of the other translations, one of them says simpletons, simpletons, simple ones, gullible. The word can mean gullible or naive, simple. There's no effort necessary to be this. Someone that is gullible, who will believe anything. All you have to do in this fallen world is sit back. There's no effort necessary to be a simpleton, to be the gullible. Notice also that they take pleasure. The simple ones take pleasure. They delight. The scoffer delights in their scoffing. They hate knowledge and they love scoffing, mocking. You remember, again, as you move forward into the revelation of God, in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul starts this amazing explanation of the gospel itself, he starts with the fact that everybody knows the true God, that he has made himself known to them so much so that they are without a what? Def they're without an excuse. They're without a defense. That the natural order is so shouting at God's image bearers, every single breath, every single moment, every single heartbeat, Everything is screaming to us about the knowledge of God. And God has made himself known to every image bearer of God. The problem, as we've always said, isn't a lack of light. It's that people love the darkness rather than the light. But notice that Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that oh, even though people know God, they don't want him in their knowledge. They don't want to know him. They don't want to think about him. And in this text in Proverbs, there's an explanation of the fool, the simple one, and it says they are taking pleasure in their scoffing, and they actually hate to know. They hate knowledge. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to understand. The problem is a problem of the nature, the fall, the heart. And Paul further expands on this problem in Romans chapter 3. Just take a look at how he explains this in Romans chapter 3. You know this section. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, I'll go right before it. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That was already seen in Proverbs chapter 1. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no what? No fear of God before their eyes. The fundamental problem of humanity. No fear of God. So these scoffers that delight in their scoffing, they take pleasure in their mocking the wisdom of God. They take pleasure in mocking God. They love their mocking. They love their scoffing. And it says that they actually hate knowledge. And again, what's the problem here? John 3.19. Light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. But men loved what? The darkness rather than the lights. You see, that thread runs all the way through the Bible. This is not just something that happens one moment in Proverbs where you have this scene set that God gives where wisdom is crying out, wisdom is pleading, wisdom is beckoning, please listen, please listen. I'll pour out my heart, I'll pour out my spirit to you, please come. It's not just this one scene. It is the whole story of humanity. We are so prideful, we don't fear God, we actually are enemies of God, we hate God, we don't want to think about God. We don't want Him in our knowledge. And when knowledge is coming from God, we scoff, we mock at that. And yet what's amazing about it is that this is the very wisdom of God. He made the world. Everything He says is the truth. And so while wisdom is here personified as a woman in the marketplace pleading and beckoning, come and listen, I'll pour out this to you. It's going to bless you. This is really... In a sense, a picture of God. God giving truth. God giving wisdom and people hating to know. They don't want to know because the problem is ultimately a fallen heart. But yet, here's what's important. It's easy for us to look at a text like this and simply say, let me look out there at those people who are at war with God, who hate His Word, and look out there at their problem and rejecting truth and knowledge from God or wisdom from God. I think the most important thing for us to do as God's people is to actually look at something like this and reflect on our own experience. As Christians, when wisdom is given, are we like the scoffers? Are we like the gullible? Are we like the simple and the naive who just refuse to listen? That we don't want actually any correction. We don't want to know even when God's wisdom is given to us with a pleading and a beckoning and a calling, we say, no, I don't want that. You see, Proverbs chapter 12, move there with me. Proverbs chapter 12 is actually a devastating verse, and children love this verse. You'll see why in a minute. It's the verse that children love. Proverbs chapter 12 Verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's why kids love it. You know, like, do you hear the pastor said stupid from the pulpit? Is he allowed to do that, mom? It's in the Bible, so I get a pass. It's not being used in the 
kind of pejorative sense you would typically expect meant to rail against somebody, just simply call them a name, you stupid. This is actually describing a person who is like a brutish beast. They have no understanding. They don't want to understand. They can't communicate. They can't understand. They're like a beast. But notice what it says. Ready? Here it is. Whoever loves discipline, correction, loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. If you're the kind of person who doesn't want reproof, you don't want to be rebuked or corrected. You don't want to ever really understand or know. You think you've got it all together. And when someone comes to you with godly wisdom, you reject it, maybe because of ego, maybe because of pride. The Bible says, if you love correction, you're wise. People who don't want to be corrected are stupid. You're like a beast. He that hates reproof is stupid. Now, I'm sure especially parents can give a, we could sit here all night and give a thousand stories about times where you tried to give to your children wisdom, wisdom. And what did you do it for? Can you think, this is one of the most frustrating things about being a parent, and I know you all feel this, is when you see danger ahead and you call out to your children, no, no. Or, you know, you'll tell your child, like my granddaughter, a couple of weeks ago, just running across her little beautiful redhead, cute little girl, teeny tiny little Eve, running across the couch, and there was the call, the wise call from the city gates. Eve, stop running on the couch. Because you know, she's so small, it's not a big couch, but it's enough to hurt her if she falls off. And so wisdom cries out, don't do that. It's not good for you. You're going to hurt yourself. And what do prideful, sinful people want to do when they hear wisdom coming? They scoff. And I think she maybe did. She, <laughs> right? And she keeps running. What do we think is sinful people? When somebody gives to us godly wisdom, they try to give us instruction, what we typically think is what? You're trying to rob me of something good on the other side. There must be a treasure at the end of this couch that you're trying to keep me from. We're so sinful. That's what we think when someone says, hey, God didn't make the world that way. Don't live this way. Don't sin against God in this way. Don't do that. Love God. Love your neighbor. Don't behave that way. That's not wise. We typically say, you're trying to rob me of joy. Something is at the other end of that that you're trying to keep from me. That's not true. There's calamity on the other side. Like when we kept beckoning and calling to Eve, don't do that. Don't run on the couch. We don't want you to get hurt. And her little two-year-old redheaded mind, she runs joyfully. There's something here. And then falls face first off the couch on top of her head onto the tile. And it's, it's, it's the sound that crawls up the spine of every parent where you've tried to give wisdom. And then there's that shrieking cry and it finds its way up your back into your head and you'd go, I tried to tell you. I tried to warn you. And I'm gonna love you and try to console you, but I tried to give you wisdom. That's not how you live in this world. The same thing happened once with my son Sage. Um, 
I warned him. They went out to a, a youth camp. We do better now. We have more volunteers. They went up to a youth camp for Apologia out into the woods somewhere. And my son Sage, I was like, make sure you stay with everybody. You're going to be out in the middle of nowhere. You know, don't wander off sort of a thing. You know, he's old enough to hear his dad and know that I have good counsel. I give him wisdom. He should listen. And so I don't wander off. Stay with everybody because, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it's like the next day. He's been gone for a day. And I'm driving with Candy in the car here in town. They're way up north. And I get this weird number on my cell phone, and I typically don't answer numbers that I don't recognize. But something told me I need to answer the phone. And so I answered it, and it's my son Sage. And he's like, Dad? It's like, yeah. He goes, I'm lost. And I pulled the car over. Wait, what do you mean you're lost? Where are you calling me from? He said, a guy picked me up in his truck. I was like, oh, no. Oh no, like every, every nightmare that a parent has, right? My son is lost in the wilderness and some guy in the wilderness, hey, get on in, right? Like everything is wrong right now. First you're lost, second you're in some strange guy's car and I'm like, Sage, where are you? I don't know. And I'm, I'm like desperate because his phone is cutting out because he's in the mountains and like panicking as a father. But what happened was, is he did what I said don't do and that is that he decided to wander away from the group. And he went down a mountain, he ended up getting lost, and he just wandered around, I guess, for a couple of hours. <clears throat> His story is, is that he, at one point, he just decided he was gonna die. <laughs> Apparently, just before the truck showed up, he had just consigned himself, I guess I'll die right here. Like he, I was like, did you notice any cabins anywhere? He's like, yeah, there were cabins. He's like, you didn't think to go knock on a door before you decided to die, <laughs> he was like 18. He had some growing. I'm just joking. No, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But you get the point. Like, just, we can all tell stories like that. Even this weekend, in the last two months at Apologia, we've had two small children swallow quarters <laughs> and have to get surgery to take them out. Can I get an amen, Zach? It's one of those things where you're like, as a parent, you're like, you tell them from the smallest stage, don't put that in your mouth. It's not that it, it's not, I'm not trying to rob you of flavor. I promise, there's no joy in this. Like, you, if you put it in your mouth, you could choke and you could die. And so you know, as a small child, you're always watching. And with me, I'm like hyper about it. I'm always watching, always watching. If something gets near them, I feel like, don't do that. You can hurt yourself. Don't put that in your mouth. And then you find those times where the small children just decide, I'm probably missing something here. This must be delicious because these people keep trying to keep it from me. And then the child puts the quarter in the mouth, swallows the quarter, and spends the night in the hospital having to have it surgically removed. Now, praise God, these children are safe and they're alive today. But wisdom cries out in the living room, don't do that. Don't do that. I have peace and safety for you. Don't do that. And then the little children walk by scoffing. Ha, what do you know? Wisdom. <laughs> we understand this is how it works in a fallen world. People behave in this way. But what does wisdom say? Next, there is the call from the marketplace over the sea of people, over the noise. The call is, 
If you turn, verse 23, at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Verse 23 is beautiful. Think about it. Wisdom is coming into a context that is hostile. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen. As a matter of fact, they mock it when it comes because they hate knowledge. And they're simple. They're gullible. The Bible calls them fools. But what is God's wisdom doing? It's pleading. Right? Isn't that amazing? Like, it's still concerned for the fool, the scoffer, the one who delights in their scoffing. Wisdom is still coming and still pleading in the marketplace, out there. It's going to them, and it's actually saying, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I'll pour out my spirit to you. The word turn there is essentially repent. Same basis. Turn around. You're going one way. Stop going that way. Turn around. Go the other way. Wisdom's bleeding like arm out. I mean, the text says that. If you turn in my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you've refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. That's what's happening here. And it says here, reproof. If you turn at my reproof, the word reproof, probably more familiar to say rebuke. The word is rebuke. 16 out of the 24 occurrences in the book of Proverbs, when it's connected to things like this, a call to turn, it means to reprimand or call to account. So here, watch this. Delighting in their scoffing, they're fools, they're gullible, they're simple, they hate knowledge, and wisdom is crying out, beckoning, please listen, please listen. And it says they don't want it. So I think we can ask the question here as you come to this. Do we love correction? Or do we hate knowledge? Do we love correction or do we hate knowledge? Why do we, why do we all hate it so much when someone comes to us and tries to offer us wisdom or correction? Why are we so prideful? Fools despise wisdom and correction. Now, now, don't get me wrong. We can't be the kind of people that are constantly trying to look at the other brother or sister next to us to find their faults, to try to constantly correct the person next to us. We need to be a community of love and grace and forgiveness. But let's be honest, we're all being sanctified. And God heals people within the local church. He, we, he uses the one another's to bless and encourage and to strengthen one another. And even when we have a brother or sister come to us with love and compassion and grace and point something out that is clearly biblical and that we need for our healing, we are still so often resistant. So what are we? Are we the wise person that actually joyfully receives correction? Or are we the fool? who hates knowledge, hates correction, and is stupid. Because that's how the book of Proverbs puts it. Are we the kind of people that love correction? Or do we hate knowledge? 
Think about this in terms of just the regular world. Um, there's a million examples that be given to this. I know all of us understand this in your own backgrounds and how you've been trained. Some of you guys are experts in your field. You're good at what you do. You know what it was like to learn. You know what it was like to receive correction. And it's interesting, in certain contexts, we understand I need to listen to the one who knows. I need to be willing to be corrected. I was... Um, I, I traveled all my high school uh, years, my uh, teenage years, I traveled every weekend uh, to a different state. I was, I was competing constantly professionally. As you've heard me say before, I don't know how I graduated high school. I missed so much school um, traveling and competing um, on the national circuit and international circuit. Uh, but I actually uh, was fine with flying because I've been flying my whole life. And then we had some, some bad experiences. I had two really bad experiences flying uh, where I thought we were going to die. And so I went from having zero fear of flying to being petrified, terrified of flying. And I lived here in Arizona at a certain point, and a friend of mine knew that I had this new fear of flying. I don't anymore. And so he said, hey, Saturday, I want you to meet me at this location. And so I didn't understand why. He just said, I want you to meet me there. I said, okay. And so I go to this place, and it's an airstrip here. I think it was in Chandler. And I was like, what are we doing here? He said, I purchased you a discovery flight. I said, what's that? He said, you're going to go up in an airplane and you're going to fly it. And I'm terrified of flying in planes at this point. I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea. He said, it's a very good idea because then you understand there's nothing to be afraid of. And so I had two friends with me. Um, and actually, one of them visiting was my master instructor. And so they were sort of scared themselves because they just got tossed into this. And they were like, is it safe? And they're like, yeah, it'll be safe. You've got an instructor and they're flying. But believe me, when we took off of that airstrip and we were up in the air and he said, take over the controls, when I put my hands on the controls, I was captive to every word he said. If I did anything wrong and he said, don't do that or do this, it was immediate, yes, sir, I will obey anything you say. Tell me what to do, my master. I was, you know, anything. And we understand in situations like that, if you have the professional, the one who knows, and they're giving you correction, you just yield to it. You do what they say because they know they're the wise one. They're the one with the knowledge. They know this skill and they know how to apply it. And it's, isn't it amazing? In all of our lives, when it comes to understanding how to do something, a skill, art, science, medicine, we understand that you need to listen and take correction, and we're willing to do it. <clears throat> but we're not willing to do it in the church. We're not willing to do it at times in our homes because there's this resistance that comes from a place, I believe, purely of pride. What kind of people are we? Are we people who love correction? We joyfully receive correction? Or do we hate knowledge? Now, Proverbs chapter 3 Verses 11 through 12, it says this. This is a familiar one to all of us. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. What is that? Rebuke, reprimand, calling to account. Don't be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, 
the son in whom he delights. What does God do with children that he loves? What's he do? He corrects them. What does the Bible tell us? If you're without correction, you're illegitimate, right? So people who say, I know God, God is my father, I know Jesus, and yet there is no sanctification, there is no transformation, nothing is happening that draws them more and more to godliness and holiness, nothing has happened. The question can be asked, well, if you're without correction, if you still love your sin, if you still love the way you're going, then it doesn't look like God is your father. Because what does God as a father do to all his kids? What's he do? He corrects them. What does any loving father do to their son or to their daughter? When they're falling into error, when they're perishing, he tries to pursue, he tries to correct. That's the duty and the role of a father. Wisdom corrects, and God corrects those that he loves. But you'll notice also Proverbs chapter 1, the text says, verse 24, because I've called and you refuse to listen, I stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. It says, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. You'll notice that this comes after the promise, I will pour out my spirit to you. Some translations say heart, pour out my heart. I'll pour out my spirit. This word pour essentially is an uncontrollable gushing forth. Like that's the offer of wisdom. It's crying out, it's beckoning, the hand is out, and there's the promise of this uncontrollable gushing forth of God's spirit, his heart, to the gullible, to the one who scoffs, to the fool. But wisdom has the last laugh because there is a switch now in the text. It goes from wisdom crying out, wisdom is pleading, wisdom is calling, wisdom is offering knowledge, wisdom is offering correction, and the fool hates the knowledge, the fool delights in the scoffing, and then wisdom has the last laugh. It says, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Essentially what's happening here is wisdom is having the last laugh. Wisdom is saying, you mocked me, I'll, last, I'll laugh last. This is really important because while wisdom here is being personified as a woman, we know ultimately that Christ is the very wisdom of God. God is the one who is wise, offering this wisdom and this call to everyone who hates him. So ultimately, God does this. But notice something very important. Wisdom is not laughing at the pain and disaster. Wisdom isn't doing that. Wisdom is laughing at the triumph of what is wise, good, right and true over foolishness. This wisdom laughing is a triumphant, joyful laughing of wisdom conquering foolishness. The right over the wrong. This is essentially a moment where you know the 
common way to put it, you made your bed, and now what? You're laying in it. You made your bed, and now you're laying in it. This is really important because it's lacking today in our a pursuit of calling the world to Christ. It's lacking today. This promise of judgment, the promise of calamity. Wisdom does it. Wisdom cries out, says, I'll pour it out. Please come. Please receive it. Stop hating knowledge. And then wisdom says, when your terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. What does Galatians 6, 7 say? God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You can't live in God's world that he made as his image bearer in a way that is contrary to his truth and his order. Ultimately, there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of calamity. And when that day comes, God will laugh. God will laugh. It's interesting because in verse 24, look at it. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. So what's that? I call and you don't listen. I call and you won't heed it. And in verse 28, it says, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. So in 24, it's, I called, you wouldn't listen. In verse 28, when they call out to me, I won't listen. Those are terrifying words that we should think long and hard about in God's world. He calls out his truth. He calls out wisdom. He's, he's beckoning, come, come, receive this wisdom. And then there's going to be a moment. There's going to be a trip. There's going to be a turn where God says, when you cry out to me, I'm not listening. I won't. You didn't listen to me. I'm not listening to you. When that calamity strikes, when that hurricane comes, and you're sitting in this mess, now just observing the destruction, when you cry out, I will not listen. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a terrifying thing. That is a terrifying thing to face, that the word comes out, wisdom will beckon and call, and when that day of judgment comes, and you're crying out, there's no answer. As a matter of fact, there's laughter. That's what the text says. It's a terrifying thing to think about in terms of our own personal lives, maybe our family, maybe our churches, but also our nation. If our nation is under the hearing of God's word and God's wisdom and the crying out in the city square, in the marketplace, and they won't turn, there will be a day of disaster. There will be a day of calamity. Now, none of us want that to happen, amen? Yes? Like, we're not, we're not masochists just hoping for it, but you can't live in God's world perverting his ways and not receive judgment. You can't disrupt the family. You can't lie to children about God and human origins and ethics. You can't disrupt God's truth about economics and not reap the whirlwind ultimately. You reap 
what you sow. We live in a time where we're all feeling it right now, aren't we? Do you feel it? Do you feel it when you go to the grocery store? Do you feel it when you go to the gas pump? Do you feel it when you watch our leaders, the leaders of this nation, spouting off some of the most ridiculous, insane, foolish things imaginable? Do you feel it when you see the tyranny creeping in? It's a lack of wisdom. And there will be calamity and judgment if you keep going down that road. And it is a terrifying thing to hear from the revelation of God that when that calamity comes and you cry out, the fool cries out, okay, now I'll listen. God says, I'll laugh. And when you cry out to me, I won't answer. That's a terrifying thing to think about. Praise God, we have a mighty Savior, amen? The only hope and peace that we'll find is in Christ. And it's interesting because I was thinking about the wording here in terms of calamity and terror striking you like a storm, the whirlwinds. Um, we, have a, we have two church plant missions at Apologia. We have Apologia, Utah, which God is blessing tremendously, and Apologia, Kauai. We've been working and laboring in both places, and in, in Kauai, we've had to take a little bit of a pause to regroup, to figure out how we're gonna do it uh, to be successful in our mission, our mission there. But when you go to Kauai, it's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. It's also one of the hardest places imaginable to plant a church because there is so much hostility towards truth, the exclusive claims of Christ. There is so much spiritual oppression and darkness. There, is, there are so many cults. Um, there's so much um, uh, uh, of the typical sort of evangelical, uh, you have your truth, I have my truth, we're fine sort of a thing. Jesus is a friend of mine kind of stuff going on there. But though, though it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, sometimes you remember where you're at. And what I mean by this is that you're driving on the road and you see the reminder signs that it's like a tsunami safety zone. Like if there's a tsunami, drive down this road to the safe spot. And so sometimes you're like, this is the most gorgeous, this, is must, this must be what the Garden of Eden looked like. And then you get these little reminders of the fallen world that you live in. Hey, by the way, if uh, the water starts overwhelming the island, go that way to get safe. And it's interesting in a place where you can get hit with a whirlwind or with hurricanes, you recognize, everybody recognizes, they had them really bad this past year in Kentucky, that when it's upon you, the only thing that you can really do is just sit back and watch the destruction. There's nothing you can do. You have to stay put to watch the destruction. And what wisdom is saying here in this text is that that day when it comes, when you're just going to be a spectator to the destruction that is all around you, when you cry out, I'm not returning an answer. And that is, I think, the way that as a church we need to go into the world with the wisdom of God. <clears throat> There's my summary. Wisdom doesn't pull punches. Wisdom tells the truth about God, about us, about the world. It goes into the world, it tells the truth, recognizing the fool hates knowledge, 
The scoffer delights in their scoffing, and that you're talking to people who will resist. But you still need to bring the wisdom of God, and it needs to come with a warning. A warning about judgments. A warning about the truth surrounding judgment. Wisdom will have the last laugh. She pleads, she offers, but she'll have the last laugh. In verse 32 to 33, the scene ends with this. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. There's a promise here about godly wisdom. Ease, no dread of disaster. I tried to think of, because there's a million applications to this, right? Like you could talk about the problem of fatherlessness in our world today. We act like there's no real meaning and beauty in a father. There's no real meaning and beauty in a mother in those distinct, beautiful roles that God has made. <clears throat> we act like it's not really special. It's not really necessary. And so we reap what we sow. We have a generation in our world today around us of fatherless children in many ways. You could talk about the issue of abortion, fatherless children abandoned, killed. You could talk about fatherlessness in the city, gangs, people who are out for innocent blood, people who want to destroy others and plunder them. You could talk about what fatherlessness does and the wisdom of God coming from the people of God, coming from the church, calling into the world. No, you need to be a godly man a godly father. You need to be a godly woman and a godly mother. You need to stay together. You need to, you need to, you need to grow that little sphere and that garden that God has given to you to bring glory to God. You need to stick with it. You need to live according to God's law and his wisdom to bless the world. And you see the destruction, the erosion of the world around us because we say, I hate your knowledge. I delight in my scoffing. I don't want your ways, God. We can do it our way. And look what it gives to us. The destruction of the family. Young men growing up with no dads. Young women growing up, no fathers, no real mothers. And the destruction that is all around us because of that. I try to think of ways to describe how God's wisdom blesses. It brings peace. It keeps you safe. It's like the granddaughter trying to run across the couch. Don't do that. I'm trying to keep you safe. I'm trying to keep you protected. I'm trying to keep you in one piece. And they just go running off the sofa anyway. God's wisdom keeps you safe, blessed, protected. It brings beauty to the world, joy to the world. I try to think of ways to express this by way of application. And I was thinking, the month we're in right now, people call it Pride Month. It's easy to respond to say pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. That's true. It's easy simply to point to God's word and say, God calls it an abomination. There's no way out of that. God calls it an abomination. Romans chapter 1, 
God says it's, it's it, flipping the order of creation on its head. It's rebellion. It's idolatry. That's what it is, it's idolatry. You could do that. It's true. You can go that route, and we should. Call people to repentance. Let them know there's freedom in Christ. <clears throat> but there's another way I think you can make application to this in terms of when you listen to God's wisdom, you dwell with ease. You are safe. You are protected. We don't often talk about the destructive nature of the lifestyle being promoted this month. The nature of the lifestyle. I was reading an article, and I'll try to be careful here because I want to make application. I was reading an article about a man from a man who lived in that lifestyle for decades. And he gave a very honest, brutal at times, description of that lifestyle that he lived. Promiscuous as a man, going into places where men are with men. And he did it for a long time. And he talked about what people don't generally talk about in terms of the destructive nature of that lifestyle. When you try to live in God's world, apart from his ways, how it destroys you. It takes away your ease. It takes away your safety. It actually destroys you. He was talking about the fact that many of these men, as they get older, have to wear diapers. They have to wear diapers. Incontinence is an issue. Men who are in their 40s, they have to wear a diaper to the gym because if they exert any pressure while they're lifting weights and exercising, they might use the bathroom on themselves. He talked about the fact that he had to go constantly to the doctor to get surgery and to get help because of bleeding hemorrhoids and other problems like that. He's talking about the fact that no one ever talks about this in this community, in this prideful community, this community with so much pride. The destructive nature of this lifestyle and wisdom from the Christian church goes into the world and it says, no, God has made the world in this beautiful way where there is actual harmony, male and female relationship, where it's not destructive to be intimate together. As a matter of fact, far from destructive, when you do this God's way, it's not only not destructive, it is mutually fulfilling in the only way possible in God's world. Just consider that, that it is only through male and female intimate relationships where there is a mutual fulfillment for both people involved in the intimacy only through male and female and there are only consequences that are life giving when you listen to God's wisdom apply it across the spectrum answer the category you'll see that when you listen to God's wisdom and his truth when you yield to that truth and you accept correction there is ease there is safety, there is comfort, there is joy. But when you reject the call of wisdom in the marketplace and in the public square, what, will le what will you will finally land on is destruction, the hurricane, all that, will, that you should expect to have when you live in God's world apart from His way. You will be sitting there in ruins. And the fearful thing that all of us should think hard about 
is that when wisdom is calling in the marketplace, in the public square, and we refuse to listen, when that calamity comes, Scripture says that wisdom will have the last laugh. Wisdom laughs. And wisdom says, and when you call out to me, I will do what you did to me. I won't answer either. I pray that God makes us into the kind of people that love knowledge. We love correction. We pause. We pause when a brother or a sister brings something to us and says, hey, God's word says this about being a better father or about being a mother or you should do this in this way because God calls us to. We're the kind of people that actually pause for a minute to say, is this wisdom? Because if it is wisdom, I want to love it. I want to love knowledge. I don't want to be the fool that hates knowledge. I don't want to be somebody that God says is stupid. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd bless the words that went out today for your glory and kingdom. Make us into people who love wisdom and correction. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.